book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. The Christ Community Church is our tradition to rise for the reading of God's word. So if you please rise. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, it's on page 984. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Please be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's work. And you have your Bibles open there to Colossians chapter 3. If you weren't here last week, I I mentioned that when we get to Colossians chapter 3, chapter 3 represents a significant transition point in Paul's letter. Paul shifts from doctrine in chapters 1 and 2 to duty. He shifts from beliefs, chapter 1 and 2, to behaviors, chapter 3 and 4. For the Apostle Paul, uh, once he starts talking about faith, you know what's going to happen next is he's going to talk about following. He's going to talk about who Jesus is, who we are. He's going to put those things together in the gospel. And then he's going to say, now once you've received that, then something has to happen. Something has to change in the about. In, 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 in about the way that you walk. And so as we study the final two chapters, we can anticipate some very practical, some very pointed, and probably some very painful points of contact to our hearts, our souls. In the next few weeks, uh, you might feel like it's spiritual surgery. And so I can see some of you looking at your iPhone calendar now going, golly, February, I'm just booked up on Sundays. I'm going to miss that little section. And, and I would encourage you to, to say no. Uh, what, what Paul's going to be talking about in, the, in chapters 2 or 3, it's not elective surgery. It, it's not like, well, I've got the gospel and then I just can go on and live my life. No, these, things, these two things go together. And, and once you really understand and grasp the gospel, then this surgery must take place in your heart and in my heart, in order for us to become healthy. And so as he covers the, these three broad areas, as we'll, we travel through the next several weeks through these, chapter 3, verse 5 through 11, you might think of those as vices. Things that are, were part of your old life that now have to be put to death. I had some old habits, I had some old attitudes, but now that I know Christ, I see Christ, I follow after Christ, some, some things, more than one, have to be put to death. 
in the following verses, 12 through 17, you might think of those as virtues. These are the things that I've got to put on. Maybe I had some portion of them, but they have to increase. Maybe I didn't do any of that. But there's something I have to take off, like some old clothing, and there's some new things that I have to put on. And then at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, he talks about relationships. So vices, virtues, and relationships. And what I want to do this morning is begin with some preliminary observations or assumptions, just so that we understand we're all on the same page as we look through these texts in the next couple of weeks. And then I want to conclude by challenging you and I to think about Paul's opening phrase, put to death. So I want to make four observations. Really, they're sort of assumptions of the text that I want to make sure you're making the same assumption as I am as we look at the text. And then really today, I'm going to just close with just looking at this opening phrase, put to death. First, observation. In in the final two chapters, Paul gives instructions on the effort you and I are to expend in following Christ. In in the in the final two chapters, he's he's looking at us now and saying, hey, this is the effort that you have to expend if you want to follow Christ. The, The theological term for that is sanctification. There's a process after you meet Christ and theologically you call that sanctification. I'm in the process of sanctification. And that process is the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, working together with my effort and trying to make certain changes. And if you're here for the first time or this is that you've missed a few sermons, it's, it's important to understand Paul's instructions concerning your effort follows Paul's very clear message about the gospel. Got to make sure you get those right. He's talking about this process of sanctification, but he's already been talking about the gospel, which we would call salvation. So we have salvation and then we have sanctification. And it's critical that we don't get those things backwards, that we think of salvation, sanctification as here's all the things I got to do. So God would love me. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. The good news is God has acted And now that he's acted because of his mercy, because of his love, now I'm reacting to that and I'm making certain efforts. I'm trying to walk in a new path. And so let's just look back at chapter 2, verse 13, and you can see it very clearly here. His little uh, 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 synopsis of the gospel, chapter 2, 13. And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and he set it aside by nailing it to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Anybody that would cast any dispersion against you, he's he's disarmed all of those who would create any kind of judgment against you. So you and I, the Bible's clearly saying, Paul's clearly saying, but it's in a number of other places that we are dead in our sins. That's the condition of every soul that's disconnected from Jesus. We're we're dead. We're not wounded. We're not imperfect. We're not deficient. We're not damaged. We're not defective. No, we're dead. We're dead. There's nothing that we can do. We're dead. Something has to happen to make us alive. 
And it, this is a sobering biblical diagnosis. But the good news is the gospel. The gospel is good news. And that is because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead, he, he took on our death and he gave us his life. And so on the cross, Jesus canceled our, our record of debt. And if you were here for that particular sermon, you might remember the illustration. It was the National Debt Clock. You remember this? Have you ever seen the National Debt Clock? You can go online and see it. It's in New York City or somewhere. 18 trillion some billion millions. It's, it's a number that's larger than you can really even imagine. And the scary thing is the speed in which it adds. You think, how, how fast are we going into debt? And the, that's the heart that doesn't know Christ. It's got such a big debt and we're adding to it at such great speed that there's no possible way that we could pay it off. And so the great news is that Jesus Christ has come and he's collected all of your debt. He's collected all the little IOUs that you must be accountable for. And he's saying, hey, let me take all of those from you and I'm going to nail them to the cross. And Jesus paid it all. You don't have to pay anything else. There's not one single sin you're left to be accountable for. That is great news. That's the gospel. Now that that has happened, now that we realize, gosh, we've been freed, we, we've, been, we've been made alive, now I want to live in a different way. I want that grace of God to fill up my soul and help me to walk in a different way. So we need to make sure we're clear that Christianity is about what God has done to get to you. Religion is about what you do to get to God. It's a big difference between those two things. So we're not here trying to be religious. We don't want to look at this list as the do better list. We want to look at this list as because of the grace of God, we're reacting and trying to live in a different way. Now, the grace that brought us from death to life also fuels our effort, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, to walk in a manner worthy of him. I love how Dallas Willard, great author, writes this. It's crucial to realize grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. He goes on to say, without effort, we would be nowhere. When you read the New Testament, you see, you see how astonishingly, astonishingly energetic it is. Paul's always saying, take off the old man, put on the new man. There's no suggestion that this will be done for you. So he's talking about this process of sanctification, this effort. So my, my first assumption is that when Paul's talking about putting things to death or putting things on, he's talking about your effort in the process of sanctification. He's not talking about salvation. All right? We all clear on that first assumption. That's critical. Number two, the changes you and I need to take to have take place in our life, it takes time. This isn't brand new information. You shouldn't be writing this down like, wow, Never thought of that. So glad I'm here. It takes time. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.16. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So we're just going up one degree at a time. We're being slowly transformed. He says in Colossians that we're, we're trying to present people who are mature in Christ. And to become mature in any way, it takes time. 
You don't mature overnight. It takes time to become mature. It doesn't happen all at once. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about that, that phrase that you might remember from the Velveteen Rabbit. You remember that? The, the little conversation between the rabbit who's trying to become real and he's talking to the skin horse. And the rabbit says, what is real? He's asking this to the skin horse. And the skin horse says, it doesn't happen all at once. It takes time. So when we're talking about this change, when we're talking about this transformation, it doesn't happen all at once. Which leads to my third observation, my third assumption. And that is, as members of Christ's community, we'll be growing together, we'll be working together, we'll be in community with one another, with people who are at various stages. We're not all going to be at the same stage. Some people are going to be more mature. Some people are going to be less mature. So we're all going to be intersecting with each other and we're going to be at different stages. And so everyone here still has issues. So here's what I want you to do. Just turn to your neighbor and say, you have issues. You have issues. Some of you were like, yes, that's why I came today. You have issues. None of us are completely mature. Some, some spouses here just love that moment there. So, so inside the church, you should expect to find people still contending with their sin. That shouldn't be any surprise when you roll up next to somebody in some group or some committee, small group, anywhere, and they're still contending with sin. You shouldn't be in any way surprised. They're all at various stages trying to put things to death and trying to put on things. People are at various stages trying to put to death anger and put on patience. Now, some people are really mature in that, and some people are just beginning that process. So we're not going to be surprised when we run into people like that. So I'm stating this clearly to make sure we understand the church is not equal to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is perfect. The church is not. The pastor, the staff, the elders, the deacons, community group leaders, worship team people, service team people all have issues. We're all still working on issues of putting things to death. So I'm not making excuses for immaturity. I'm just trying to adjust expectations. Especially if you're new at Christ's community, especially if you're thinking about joining the church. If, if you were hoping to join a church that people had already fully matured and had no issues, I am very sorry to say you need to look for another church. You will not find that here. You're going to find people in various stages of maturity, some who are just beginning to put to death some things and some people who are more mature. But even the most mature people are still trying to put some things to death. So we won't be shocked to run into a sinner here at Christ Community Church. We're, we're not going to look around and say, gosh, everybody here has their act together. That's not true. My fourth assumption. Over the final two chapters, Paul's going to exhort you. He's going to exhort me to do something very difficult, very painful, probably more than one thing. To put to death some kind of long-standing, comforting, controlling, sinful habit is going to be painful. 
You're in some sort of attitude. You're in some sort of rut. You're in some sort of habit that you've just grown up. This is the way I respond to things. And you genuinely had a life-transforming encounter with Christ. And you look at that and say, I don't want that to be a part of my new DNA. So you're going to have to put this to death. But you're so used to talking this way, doing it this way, having this attitude. And to try to put that to death is going to be... It's going to be painful to put on a new attitude like meekness and patience to put these things off and to put these things on. My fourth assumption is that it can't be done alone. You can't just go do this on your own. This term one another appears a lot of times in the New Testament. It's a key key phrase. It's in chapter three. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another. You see that? You're going to come into a church that have varied degrees of maturity. You're going to be in a small group. You're going to be in, on some kind of service team. You're going to be sitting next to somebody. And you're going to have to bear with that person. They're still trying to put some things off. They're trying to, to, to put some things to death. You're going to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint... See, Paul's assuming there's going to be, this is going to happen inside the church. When one has a complaint against the other, then forgive each other. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you. You remember the forgiveness of the Lord. You remember the grace of God. And then you try to extend that grace to your immature brother or sister. That's going to be difficult. And we need one another. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So we're going to have to teach. You're going to have to admonish. Somebody comes in. I don't know what to do. Hey, here's what you do. But then you come in and you say, hey, I see what you're doing. You can't do that anymore. So it's teaching. Feels encouraging. Admonishing. Doesn't feel encouraging, but super critical. So we're going to have to do that to and for one another. I saw this interesting video because I was trying to think of a good illustration of this one anothering sort of illustration. And I thought about a, a, a tumbler, how you make a, a rough gemstone into something that's worthwhile. And you've probably seen it. It's just a big barrel. You, you put in the barrel these, these gemstones. They're all rough. They've got a lot of grime on them. And then in this little illustration, you, you turned it on and you had to have a certain number of gemstones in there. If you had too few, they didn't roll and tumble on top of each other. If you have too many, then they just kind of got stuck in the same position. So there was a certain amount you had to have in the tumbler. And then once it started going, you left it going 24 hours a day for like 10 days. Just this constant tumbling of stones, one against another. And it was very interesting at the end of the video, it said a couple of things. Uh, the first step in the tum- the first step to making a gemstone, which is being in the tumbler, is where most of the real work is done in transformation. There's a couple of more steps, but most of the real work gets done in these stones knocking against each other and knocking off these sharp edges. Second st- statement they made. When you're finished with the tumbler, you're left with two things. Smooth stones and mud. I think that's a great picture of the church. All of us, in some sense, are muddy, grimy, sharp. 
And when we bump into each other, we're going to knock some of that stuff off. And you're going to be benefited from it. I'm going to be benefited from it. But in order to get that smooth stone, we have to keep tumbling one against another and keep knocking those things off so that the grime of our lives come off and we, we're, we're becoming this beautiful gemstone. And one of my concerns is that you would be able to correctly identify something that needs to be put to death, but you would erroneously think, but I can do it myself. Oh, I, boy, I know what needs to be put to death, Paul. I mean, I could tell you because on the way here, I got this attitude problem. It came out and man, that's just killing me. It's killing my family. I know what it is. And tomorrow I'm going to put that to death. Guess what? Probably not. If you think you can just do it on your own, it's not possible. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses. This is to somebody else and forsakes them will have mercy. Chris Lungard writes this great book on sin. And I want to, I want you to listen carefully to what he says. The mortification of sin, the death of sin is collaborative. Private prayer and meditation are essential. But if they were our only weapons against the flesh, we would be outgunned. Private prayer Private prayer and meditation are essential, but we're outgunned in putting sin to death if that's all we have. A man alone with his sin could privately repent and confess of his sins to God over and over, year after year, and never weaken sin's grip. I think that's why that in so many cases inside the church, there's not much more maturity. You say, well, I became a Christian when I was 16 and now I'm 46 and I've, I've only grown like one year spiritually in the last 20 years or 30 years. Why? Because I keep thinking I'm going to put these things to death myself and you're not going to do it. But, Lungard concludes, if he dared to drag his sins into the light before a trusted brother in Christ, it would shrivel and die. See, this is very difficult to open up your soul like surgery and let somebody look and say, wow, that's cancer. And I'll help you remove it. It's much easier to try to live with it inside yourself and make sure nobody sees it. And so Lungard is saying, if we could put it out into the light, It could shrivel and die. And I have personally witnessed this. People who've tried to say, well, I've got this problem. I know I've got this problem, but tomorrow is going to be the last time. And the next day, I'm not ever going to think that, do that, say that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm I'm going to be able to put that to death. And maybe you're successful for a day or a week. But very quickly, it comes rushing back in if you don't have somebody else trying to slay that, that giant. And so one of the most productive tools we have available to us in putting things to death is bringing our sin out in front of a trusted friend. I think that's why it's so important of what we're trying to do with the, the Samson Society. This group of men who are struggling with or struggling together with other men against pornography and sexual sins. 
It's something that's very easy to hide. It's very, it's something that you feel like, hey, it's the last time. I'm never going to do that again. And you're totally convinced, but it just keeps coming back. And we're trying to drag it out into the right, appropriate light in a way to finally put that to death. So let me conclude now by just commenting on Paul's opening phrase, put to death. So I've, I've made my assumption. I've made some observations. I just want to I only have time to just look at this one phrase. I'm going to make a couple of comments about it. Put to death. It's a first of all, let's just recognize it's a violent image. He didn't say manage. Work on. Scrub off. He said put to death. Now, I don't know what he was thinking Because here's Paul in a prison cell in Rome. I don't know what he might have been thinking when he thought put to death. I think it's at least possible he he thought about stoning. One, because we know from Acts chapter 7, he was at Stephen's stoning. Remember, he's standing there and they're stoning this uh, one of these first deacons, one of these first disciples of Christ, Stephen. They're stoning him to death. Paul himself had gone to a city and they drug him outside the city and stoned him and thought he had died. So it's possible that he's thinking about stoning here when he's talking about putting it to death. And the, the process, at least in the Old Testament, it's a little bit different now because they still do stone people in the Middle East, is they would take somebody and they would push them off a cliff that was about twice their height, so 10, 12 feet. And they would push them off a cliff onto a pile of stones. And then they would take a big giant stone that a few people would have to hoist up. And they would roll it off the cliff and try to crush the person's chest. And if they didn't do it or they just got off, then everybody in the community would come around and take big stones that they could handle and hurl the stones down on the person until they died. It's really, really difficult just to describe. It's brutal. But that's what Paul is talking about, about your sin. You have to push it over and then you can't just walk away. You've got to put a heavy stone on it and then you've got to see if it's still wiggling around. And then you and some other people have to say, Paul, I still see that wiggling around. Boom. Until it's completely and dead, dead. It's not mostly dead. It's it's all dead. And I think that's the violent image Paul has in his mind when he's talking about putting something to death. Jesus in Matthew five, in case you think he might have a nicer image. This is what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin. Close it. No. What does he say? Gouge it out. Gouge it out. And he says, yeah, and if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. See, because it's so much better to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. See, Paul and Jesus are very serious about sin. And so one of my questions for us as we move forward, are we serious about our sin? C.S. Lewis, I want to close with this illustration, has a really great book it's called The Great Divorce. It's a, it's a fiction book. 
And there's about a bunch of people who have come from hell into sort of the beginnings of what's called heaven. They've been on this bus ride. There's all these encounters with an angel that's meeting this person getting off the bus. And there's one encounter with this angel and this man who's come and from hell. And on his shoulder is a lizard. It represents this sin, this thing that he can't let go of, this thing that has to be cut off. And Lewis says it's this, it's a dark, oily lizard with a whip-like tail that constantly whispers in the ear of this man. So this man's trying to get into heaven, and then this angel figure sees him, comes towards him, and he sees this oily, dark lizard on this man's shoulder constantly whispering. Here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to think. Here's what you got to be. Listen carefully to the exchange and see if you hear yourself in this man's excuses. Would you like me to make him quiet? Said the angel to the man. Oh, of course I would, said the man. Then I will kill it, said the angel. Oh, who said anything about killing it? I mean, I hardly meant anything so drastic. May I kill it, said the angel. Well, I'll think it over. Honestly, I will. But today I'm not feeling well. I'll I'll need to be in better health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps, said the man. Shall I kill it, said the angel. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd be killing me, said the man. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I just said it wouldn't kill you. I know it'll kill me, said the man. But go on. Get it over with. God help me. God help me, whimpered the man. The next thing that happened, the man gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. Here's Lewis's description of Jesus. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the lizard. Twisted it while it bit and thrashed about. Then he flung it, broken backed, on the ground. And so my question here, just as we close, do you take your sin seriously? See, because if we just move to the list and we talk, we're talking about immorality or covetousness or anger. And you're not serious about it. You're, into, you're not into sin mortification. You're into sin management. It's just you're not going to break its back. You're not going to stone it. You're not going to ask somebody else to say, help me put this thing to death. And such a, a great sermon to end with communion. Because God was serious about putting sin to death. And now he wants you to be serious about joining with the power of the Holy Spirit and putting some things to death in your life. And so before I would ask you, which I'll do in the next couple of weeks, is to identify some of these areas, which will not be hard for you to do, is my guess. Before that, I want to ask you, Are you serious about putting to death what you identify? Because if you're not serious about that, then identifying really isn't worth the effort. Let's pray together.
Lord, um, uh, in the upper room, men were arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and you were going to display greatness by taking a cup and say, saying, this is going to be greatness. It's going to be me laying my life down for men full of pride. And then he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given to men full of envy and strife and anger. And so without your help, Lord, first of all, without your mercy, there's no hope for us. Without your ongoing help by your Holy Spirit, there's no way we put these things to death by ourselves. But I, I pray now for your people who come forward that they would be encouraged that, that you're never going to leave, that you're never going to forsake, that you're constantly moving towards these people and you're saying, do you want me to kill this? Help us to cry out for mercy, to receive grace here. In Jesus' name, amen.